You can turn in your Bible to Genesis 43. Okay, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we come to his word. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. God, thank you for letting us come to your word right now. Lord, please bless our time. Bless our time, Lord, in your word. These beautiful, beautiful, glorious truths. Lord, open our eyes and we might see wondrous things in your law. Lord, thank you for allowing us to worship you in song just now. Lord, now help us to worship you as we consider your word. Continue this time, Lord. Be exalted and praised, Lord, as we meditate on your word together. God, please help us. We commit this time to you, Lord. Please help us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, today we're going to be in Genesis chapters 43 and chapter 44. We're going to take them together. Why? That's a lot of scripture, right? Why are we taking chapters 43 and 44 together? And the reason that these, these two chapters are very, very connected. In fact, it's very hard to disconnect these chapters. If you remember Genesis 42, uh, Joseph had hatched a plan, a uh, plot, uh, to test his brothers. Well, we're gonna, we see that plot lived out and finalized in chapters 43 and 44. These two chapters really focus in, not just on the brothers as a whole, but they really focus in specifically on Judah. At the beginning of this passage, at the beginning of chapter 43, we've got Judah pleading with his father Jacob. And at the end of this section, at the end of Genesis 44, we have Judah pleading with Joseph. And there's literally exact phrases at the beginning of chapter 43 and at the end of chapter 44. Exact phrases that are used like Judah saying that he would bear the, the blame or he would take the blame. Just as one example. So it's very hard to disconnect these chapters. Okay. Now, we're going to take chapter 43 and 44 really uh, just in four, under four headings, uh, just to try to get the plain sense of it. As you see it there in your study guide, uh, four sections that we'll read through it, and I'll say a couple things, read through it, and I'll say a few more things. And uh, I want you to lean in and really catch just the plain sense of what's here. I want you to just take time to enjoy God's Word as we read a lot of scripture together and try to understand what's here. Now, it'll take us about 18 minutes and 26 seconds just to come through this plain sense. I want you to lean in right now and think about God's word. Now, just real quick before we read, beginning in chapter 43, just a quick reminder of where we left off last week. Joseph has gone through his humiliation and he's been exalted. Right? He's been exalted as a prince in Egypt. Famine has struck the land just like he interpreted in that dream. And this famine is getting worse and worse and worse. And so Joseph's ten brothers 
that aren't in Egypt, but they're experiencing the famine as well. They come into Egypt to get food. Now, Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers do not recognize him. They just know him as the man, this guy who is a leader in Egypt. Joseph begins to accuse them. If you remember, Joseph begins to accuse them of being spies. And of course, they say, we're not spies. We're the sons of one father. And we have a brother this, this back at home. And Joseph uses that to say, well, if that's true, then you bring that other brother. That other brother, that younger brother you say you have, you bring him to me, is what Joseph tells them. And so Joseph takes one of these brothers, Simeon, puts him in prison, puts him in jail, sends the rest of them back to their land to go and bring that younger brother, Benjamin, back to him to prove, to verify that their words are true. Now on their way back, the brothers are heading back into Canaan, and on their way back, they realize that all the money they brought to buy food is still in their sack. So each one of them is given a, a sack of grain, and they have put that food back in to the sack. And they're amazed. They don't know why this has happened. They're suspicious and even a little worried about it. They get back home. They speak to their father. They tell him all these things. And the father, Jacob, refuses. Even though Simeon's sitting in prison, their father, Jacob, refuses to send Benjamin back with them. So time's ticking. The famine is still going on. And Joseph knows that the famine is not going to stop anytime soon. And that eventually they're going to have to come back. Okay, so that's where we pick up in chapter 43. So let's read chapter 43, 1 through 15 together. Look at God's word. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt... Their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. 
Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So what we have here is brother, the, the brothers of Joseph are sent back to Egypt with Benjamin. Here they are in Canaan. They, the famine is severe, so they run out of food again. And then Jacob tells them, go back and get more food. Judah responds... And he quotes that phrase twice that Joseph had said. He said, we cannot see his face if Benjamin is not with us. He quotes that exact phrase from Joseph twice. And you can just feel the frustration here. First, the frustration from Jacob, the father. Jacob's frustrated. He says, why did you tell him this? Why did you even tell that man that I have a son here? Why did you tell him that? And then you can feel, feel the frustration from the brothers. It says that they responded as if it's just this clamor of voices coming in saying, we didn't tell him that. He started asking us questions and it just came out that we had a brother. We didn't know he would tell us to bring Benjamin. And you can just feel the frustration in this family. And then Judah chimes back in and he gives a remarkable offer. He says, listen, send him with me. Send him with me. I will be a surety for Benjamin's safety. Send him with me and I will bear the blame forever. If he does not come back, I'll bear the blame forever. Finally, the father, Jacob, relents. You can just kind of picture him saying, it says here, if it must be so. If it must be so. And he devises this plan to send the man. They keep calling him the man. They don't know it's Joseph, which is one of these brothers. He said, Get, make the man a present. Take back the money that they, that they left in your sacks. Take it back to him. Take more money to buy food. Gather together this present to give to the man. He's trying to appease, <coughs> excuse me, appease the wrath and anger of this man in Egypt. And so... It says in verse 15, they return to Egypt and they've got Benjamin, the favored son, with them. Now let's go to the next section, verses 16 through 34 to the end of the chapter. This describes their first day in Egypt. They make it to Egypt, here's their first day back in Egypt. Let's read it together. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, 
Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when, and, and when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So Joseph sees them in Egypt. Again, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Joseph looks at his steward and he says, I want you to get them to my house for lunch. Get them to my house for for lunch. Now this terrifies the brothers. They're wondering, why in the world have we been brought to Joseph's or why have we been brought to this man's house? They're thinking of reasons of what's going on. They're terrified. They're out to get us. So here they are scared. And so they go to the steward and they tell the steward, look, steward, listen, the money, there was some money left in our sacks, but look, we brought it back to you. And the steward gives them a strange, unexpected encouragement. The steward says to them, look, your God, the God of your fathers has blessed you. I received your money. I received your money. And so there they are waiting for lunch, waiting for lunchtime. And they begin to prepare that present so that they can give it to Joseph whenever he arrives at noon. And so suddenly Joseph comes in. They bow down to him and they present the gift he asked a question. Joseph asked a question about your father. How's your father? They answer the question about their father. And then they bow down again and prostrate themselves. And then Joseph catches eyes with Benjamin, his brother. And he says, is this your brother? 
And he says these words. He just pours out words of favor. God be gracious to you, my son. God be gracious to you, my son. Showing favor towards this younger son, Benjamin. Now at this moment, Joseph is moved deeply. Deeply moved to where he has to run out of this area. He leaves. He exits the building for a moment. He's, he's in his chambers crying and weeping. It says his heart was worn with compassion when he saw Benjamin. And then he wipes his face. He washes his face. He gets himself under control and he enters back in. And he says, serve the food. Serve the lunch. And they serve the lunch out to everyone. People are sitting separately. The brother's here. Joseph here. The other Egyptian's here because it's an abomination for Egyptians to eat. <coughs> Excuse me. With the Hebrews, they all sit down there and two amazing things happen. The first amazing thing that happens is they're all sat down, the brothers, in their birth order. And they're looking around at each other. This, this is amazing. How did, how did they know? And then the second amazing thing is all these portions are coming to the table to feed these brothers. But then when it comes to Benjamin, that son that's already favored by his father, gets five times the portion. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that scene? Set the plate down, set the plate down, set the plate down. And then, man, he just gets this massive load. I'm talking his steak is five times bigger. Can you imagine that? And what we're getting shown to us here is Joseph, excuse me, Benjamin, the favored son. Benjamin, the favored son. Not only favored like Joseph was by his father, but now even favored right in the face of those same brothers that hated Joseph. Favored by Joseph himself. Favored by, from their perspective, from this leader in Egypt. Favored son. Now, chapter 44 takes us into the following day. Because there they are, happy. Everything's merry. They're eating and drinking with the leader. Everything seems good. And look at chapter 44. We're going to read 1 through 13. This is the following day. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of, of his sack, and... Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my, that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, 
And each man opened his sack and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Think about what's happening here. They're about to leave out the next morning. Joseph tells the steward, I want you to take my silver cup, put it in Benjamin, the youngest one, put it in his sack and send them on their way. So they head out. and He's got this cup in his sack as if he had stolen it when he really had not. He's being framed here. And early the next morning as they leave a short distance, they're just a short distance away, the steward overtakes them and he accuses them. How could you do such evil in stealing my Lord's cup? To which the brothers begin to respond with confidence that we had not done that. These are false accusations. In fact, they're so confident that they say, whoever in whichever sack you find this cup you're talking about, that man shall die. And the stewards say, okay, wherever I find this cup, that one will be a slave. He will be enslaved, but the rest of you will be innocent. And the search begins. Now, the steward knows where the cup is, but he begins with the eldest. And he checks there, nothing. And he goes to the next one, he checks there, nothing. He goes to the next sack, and he checks there, nothing. And the confidence of the brothers is building. And then he comes to Benjamin's sack. And there's the cup. There's the guilty one. And these people are, these brothers are distraught. They're destroyed. They tear their clothes. They load everything back on their donkeys. And they head back with their guilty brother into Egypt. Now they get back into Egypt. And I want you to look at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. This is Judah now pleading with Joseph. Verse 14. Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? And how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only The man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. 
And when our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes, if, if, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy's not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So they show back up in Egypt. Joseph accuses them. How could you do such a wicked and evil thing to steal this silver from my house? Judah offers up, he expresses the guilt, their own guilt. What can we say? We are guilty before he expresses guilt to Joseph. And he says, we have all come back as your servants. Joseph says, no, no, no. We can't do it that way. Only the guilty one. Only Benjamin, the one that stole it. Only the guilty one shall be my slave. The rest of you are innocent. You can go in peace. You can go, you can go free. And then Judah begins to intercede for Benjamin. And he intercedes for his, his younger brother. And then eventually that intercession, that intercession for his brother, it ends with him offering himself up as a substitute in the place of his brother. Take me, don't take him. I'll be punished for his crime. And he offers him up, offers himself up as a substitute. Now we'll... Look next week, chapter 45, about how Joseph responds. But I want us to think together about Genesis chapter 42 and 43. And I want you to see three major themes running through this passage, or three uh, major points here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Number one, these brothers are being tested. Do you realize that? These brothers are being tested. Testing. Now we know that from way back in chapter 42. If you go back to chapter 42, as Joseph began to hatch this plan, this is what he said. Joseph says this in verse 15. By this you shall be tested. They're being tested. Look down at verse 16. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother, Benjamin, let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. These brothers are being tested. 
whether there's truth in you. Look down to verse 20. Again, Joseph says, And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. They're being tested. Their words are being verified, so that they will not die. So, you know, if you're reading this text and you're, you're just asking yourself questions like, why is Joseph being so mean? You know, he's calling them spies. He's framing his younger brother. Why is he doing that? Because these brothers are being tested. It's a brilliant test. It's a brilliant test being put on these brothers. Or you might ask, why is he demanding that Benjamin should come? Why is he he so adamant that Benjamin should come? And when Benjamin, the favored son of his father, comes, why is he showing so much favor to him? Why is he pouring out favoritism on this little brother, racking up his lunch plate and saying things to him like, God, be gracious to you, my son. Why is he pouring out favor on Benjamin? Why does he say what he says in chapter 44, verse 17, where he he doesn't say all of you will be my slaves. He said just this one Benjamin will be my slave. He'll be punished for his crime, but all of you can be set free. Why is he doing this? It's because this is a test. He's recreating a scenario that we saw back in chapter 37. Remember chapter 37? He's recreating that scenario. I want you to think about it. Chapter 37. Joseph was the favored son of his father. And the brothers sold him into slavery and then went back home richer men. That's chapter 37. Now, what, what about now? What about chapter 44? Benjamin is the favored son of his father. They've got every reason to be envious of Benjamin in the way that they were envious of Joseph. And here they're presented with the perfect opportunity to leave the favored son that they're tempted to envy and hate, to leave him in slavery just like they left Joseph in slavery. Leave him in slavery and go back home as richer men. He's recreated. It's a test recreating this same scenario. Now, did they pass the test? Did these brothers pass the test? And we see in chapter 44, verse 13, what do we see there? That this destroys these men. They begin to tear their clothes. They don't say, okay, yep, Joseph, I mean, Benjamin's guilty. You know, take them on. We're headed on back. Richer men. They don't say that, but instead, they tear their clothes and they load back up their donkeys and every one of them heads back in to Egypt. These men are passing the test. I want you to think about this for a minute. Joseph. We've been talking about Joseph as a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. Joseph, the beloved son, was promised. Remember it? To rule and reign on a massive scale. But first, as the Joseph narrative tells us, first he must enter into deep, deep humiliation. Then he would be exalted as he is now to the right hand of majesty. Why? Genesis tells us to save his people. 
He's being raised up to save the very ones who hated him. He's being, he goes through his humiliation sent by God and raised up in exaltation to the prince of this powerful land to save. Why? Chapter 45, verse 5. To save his people. He's being raised up as a savior. And so what we have here in chapter 43 and 44 is we have the story of the reconciliation of his people, the story of the redemption of his people, the same scenario put before them. And they don't act in chapter 44 like they acted in chapter 37. These are different men. These are changed men. How many of you know that, that God is a God that changes men? Second point, second heading here that I want us to see in these chapters is Judah's conversion. So we're, we're thinking about all these men being changed, all of these brothers' conversion in a sense. But chapter 43 and 44 really zeroes in on Judah, one brother. These chapters zero in not just on all the brothers, but the most hated of all of them. The worst of the worst. The wicked, evil Judah. Now you remember Judah's wickedness. You go back to chapter 37. And uh, when Joseph is sold into slavery. Remember that? Whose idea was that? They were just going to throw him into a pit and kill him. That's evil, right? And Judah's that wicked one that rises up and says, you know what? If we just kill him, we don't get anything out of that. How about we sell him into slavery? And then we'll get some money. Out of it. Judas, this is the one from chapter 38. Remember the next chapter after he sells his brother into slavery. It says that that Judah, uh, it gives you this picture of him uh, treating his daughter-in-law wickedly. We see him getting a prostitute, leaving his people and going into a prostitute. We see some wicked and evil, evil stuff from this man. And yet... What we get from chapter 43 and 44 of Genesis is that our God can change. Our God can convert and change wicked, evil people. Wicked, evil people. And I want you to think about it. Just think about Judah. This man went from selling his brother into slavery so that he could get richer. Chapter 37. Chapter 44, he's willing to voluntarily give himself into slavery so that his brother will be set free. What a mighty conversion. What a beautiful picture of what God can do. You know the hymn, God breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And here's Judah, the foulest of them all, being changed. Now we see some things about throughout uh, the Joseph narrative. You know, we thought it was about Joseph, and yet we see this uh, conversion of Judah throughout the whole narrative. Okay, so first thing we see is Judah's conviction, his conviction of sin. Remember, we saw it back in chapter 38. Chapter 38, verse 26, after all that evil that he had done, you get that little phrase in chapter 38, verse 26, where Judah drops his head and he says, she's been more righteous than me. 
And we're starting to see a little glimmer of the conviction of sin. She's been more righteous than me. And then you get to chapter 42, verse 21. And he's part of the brothers that say this. Listen to the conviction of sin. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. He's feeling the conviction of sin. In our chapter today, chapter 44, verse 16, listen to the the conviction on Judah. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. This is the Holy Spirit's work in a man's life to convict him of his sin so that he sees his need for a savior. So he sees his need for conversion. You know, David experienced, if you go to Psalm 32, uh, David speaks like this. He says, but your hand was heavy upon me. I was dried up like the drought of summer. Your hand was heavy upon me. And I acknowledged my sin to you and my sin I'm not hidden. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How did God get in there? His hand was heavy upon him. This hand of conviction. And Judah experienced the conviction. Now, does sorrow over sin automatically mean that the conversion is real? That the conversion is is genuine? And the answer is no. You can go read 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And it speaks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. There can be a worldly sorrow over sin that just leads to death. Yeah, you're sad. Yeah, you feel guilty, but it leads nowhere. But there can be a godly sorrow, a real sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. And so let's move past his conviction. What we also see is not just sorrow over sin, not just conviction, but we see a profession Coming from Judah, a profession. We see it in chapter 43, verse 9. What does he say to his father? I will be a pledge of safety. From my hand you shall require him. If you do not bring, if if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So what's Judah doing? He's got the right profession. Judah's saying all the right things right here. Think about that. I will bear the blame for him. Will he really? Will he really do that? He's saying he will. He'll bear the blame. Listen, sorrow over sin and saying the right things, a right profession, saying the right things. Does that automatically mean that the conversion is real, that it's genuine? And the answer is absolutely not. You go read James chapter 2. Remember James 2 where it speaks about um, you can say you have faith, but if you don't have works, your faith is just a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. He gives the example of somebody that looks at somebody that's really, really poor. And he says with his mouth, be warmed and be filled. But he doesn't do anything to help him get warm or have any food. What's the point? He doesn't really believe. He doesn't really want the one to be warm and filled. He's professing it with his lips, but it means nothing. Titus 1.16, it says, They profess to know me, yet in works they deny me. They profess to know me, yet in works they deny me. What about Judah? 
Sorrow over sin, conviction of sin, professing the right things. Will he live it out? Will it be verified? Will it be verified that his conversion is real? That his conversion is genuine? And the answer is absolutely yes. You read verse 33 and you see the words of what Jesus said. He said, no greater love has anyone than this, that one would give his life for his friends. No greater love is anyone than this one. Give us, and this is exactly what we see Judah. The one that sold his brother into slavery is given himself into slavery to free his brother. He's got works that verify or justify his faith or his profession. Now, I really do want you to see this as a miracle. Uh, in fact, anytime you think of conversion... The conversion of a dark, lost, evil man into a follower of God, a, a, a faith-filled one, one that fears the Lord and walks in holiness. That's a miracle like no other miracle. Do you really believe that? Because the Scripture lays it out that way, that you might see somebody who's blind receive their sight. It doesn't hold a candle to this miracle. Maybe you see someone that's deaf receive their hearing or somebody's lame and they walk again or even a dead man that's raised from the dead. Listen to me. It does not hold a candle to the conversion of a wicked, idol-worshiping God-hater that's a follower of God. It's a miracle like no other miracle. A man sold his brother into slavery and now he's willing to sell himself into slavery to free his brother. I got to read some uh, this week about John Newton. You know John Newton? John Newton was a pastor in the late 1700s. <clears throat> the, he was the writer of that amazing hymn, that really famous hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. He was used of God, if you read about him, to help abolish the slave trade, the wicked slave trade. Now, do you know what this man was? Or in his early years, do you know what John Newton was? He was a captain of a slave ship. He was a man stealer. He was a man seller. If, if Exodus 21 was obeyed, he would get the death penalty for man stealing and man selling. And yet, he's been converted. Think about that for just a minute. The slave ship captain becomes the slave trade destroyer. <laughs> Beautiful miracle that God does. And I was thinking about different people's conversion, and, and another one that stood out to me that's closer to home was a brother who had showed humility, and, and you know, I knew him in his lost state, I knew him in his safe state, and he showed humility to me and apologized, and it wrecked me. When I was lost, it wrecked me. Here's what I just give you this scenario that was in my mind. My, you guys know Dustin Cook, right? My brother in Christ, y'all know Dustin Cook. So, you know, we knew each other when we were lost and when we were saved. And I thought about these two scenarios where it was like God, the situation happened and God recreated it. And you saw the way a lost man and the way a converted man responds. And, it, and the, the story that was in my head was I remember being on the baseball fields in high school, close to the first base dugout. And me and Dustin start yapping at each other. Starts playing, gets serious. I got a cup of water in my hand. I hope you don't mind me saying this. He comes out of the dugout, boom, smacks the water, flips it out of my hand. 
We start screaming. We're shoving each other. We're about to get ready to fight. It's about to go down. The team breaks us up. And Dustin's life was spared that day. <laughs> and <laughs> but that's Dustin lost. And listen, you would, this thing that impacted me, you never would have thought this would impact me. Listen, think about this. Fast forward a few years, he's saved, he's converted, he's in Christ. I'm lost, but we're living together. I'm lost, he's in Christ. And we get into another one of these matches, these holding each other matches. It's starting to get really serious. I don't know, will they go into a fight? He said, I'm lost. I remember going out of my apartment, downstairs to my car, get something out of my car, nothing dangerous. I go back up the stairs. And I remember Dustin meeting me halfway down the stairs. A humble man, and this is very simple. He said, man, I'm so sorry. And I remember my jaw hitting the floor. What? That man, he has never said, I'm sorry, and that kind of humiliated me for anything. Did he just say, I'm sorry to me? And so, amazing conversion. They didn't know it at the time, but what I was seeing was a dead man alive. A man under the, the, the authority of Satan, under the authority of Christ. And all around this room, there's this miracle of conversion. And there's examples you could use of, I was like this, and God made me like this. Praise to the living God. Our God converts evil and wicked men and women. Praise Him. And we see it here in the life of Judah. Now, third... <coughs> Third theme I want you to see is the substitution of Christ. Please lean in and hear about something really, really important. The substitution of Jesus Christ. Now, substitution is a glorious doctrine. Glorious doctrine. Think about this. A severe punishment is due all of us from God. A severe punishment is due us from God. But Jesus stood in our place under the wrath of God. He took our punishment onto Himself. To say it like Isaiah, He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's our substitute. He stood in our place as our substitution. It's a beautiful in glorious doctrine. It's a glorious truth, indescribable, uh, incomprehensible truth. This is the kind of thing that makes preaching feel like vanity. Hey, tell them about the glories of substitution. It's like saying, take all the waters of the ocean, put them in a coffee cup. It's beautiful, beautiful substitution of Christ. Now, here's a question. Why do I want to talk about that? Why do I want us to consider the substitution of Jesus. Two quick reasons. One, because it's in the text. It's in the text. Verse 33, that's what we see, right? Take me as a slave instead of my brother. Take me as a slave and let my brother and my brothers go free. Take me instead. Take me in his place. We see substitution in the text. Now, here's the thing. Grace Community Church, and I praise God for this, and this is the grace from the Lord. Grace Community Church has been uh, commended many times, you know, by people just talking, talking to me, coming and encouraging me or whatever, about at this church there's Christ-centered preaching or Christ 
exalting uh, preaching. That we lift up Jesus. Okay? And here's something I want to encourage you with just, just to consider. Your pastors did not uh, grab this framework of Christ-centeredness and go, Hey, that's a really great idea. Let's put it over the Bible. We didn't grab some Christ-exalting lenses and say, we got a great idea how to spice this thing up a bit. Let's put some Christ-centeredness over the Bible. We didn't do that. You see, it just so happened that God's Word is Christ-centered. You read Luke chapter 24, and Jesus is walking with those men on the road to Emmaus. It says, beginning in Genesis and going through all the Old Testament, all the prophets, He began to expound to them the things concerning who? Himself. And so, brothers and sisters, when I, when I say, I'm, I'm not being, uh, I'm not allegorizing the text when I look at this example of Judah as a substitute, as a substitute for his brother and say that's a pointer to Jesus who's a substitute for us. And I hope to show you that in just a minute. But first, let me go to the second. Remember, the question is, why do we want to consider the glories of substitution? One, because it's in the text. But number two is this. I want us to be sure that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know this right here. The miracle of conversion is rooted in the substitution of Christ. What do you mean? Listen to me. The miracle of conversion is impossible without the substitution of Christ. Okay? Why is that important? I want to warn you of this. Take, take this warning for just a moment. Genesis 43 and 44 is about conversion, but it's not about substitutionless conversion. The Bible is not just a bunch of examples of bad men who became good, and hey, you used to be bad, you can be good too. The Bible's not just a bunch of stories like that. This is not a book about men who change. This is a book about a God who changes men. And he does it only through his gospel. And the heart and center of the gospel is the substitution of Jesus Christ. Conversion is rooted in the substitution of Jesus. It's rooted in it. So hear me out. Genesis 43 and 44 shows us the conversion of sinners, but it plants substitution right in the midst of it. The Bible shows us the conversion of sinners, but woven into all of its pages is substitution, 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 pointing us to Christ who is going to be the great substitute. So yes, it's about conversion, but please, please don't miss the substitution. Now here's the thing. This is massively important. And Satan knows that. And he wants to rip substitution from your gospel and make it no gospel at all. A gospel that's no gospel because it saves no one. And if you rip substitution from it, that's exactly what happens. Now, I want to I explain that. I'm going to try to be quick. There's a sermon that Albert Moeller preached. And I just want to use some of the things that he says here to, to, to tell you, listen, that, that substitution is under attack. Substitution is under fire. I want you to be aware of that. He preached a sermon called this, Why They Hate It So. 
the denial of substitutionary atonement in recent theology. He said, why, why do they hate it? Why do they hate this doctrine of substitution so much? And he tells this example of his first day of his first class in seminary. In his first day, his first class in seminary, the professor asked everybody, you know, tell us why you took this class. Tell us why you're here. And a lady speaks up and the lady says, I'm taking this course because I want to know more about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. It's a good answer, right? And it says this. The professor exploded. He said, there will be no more bloody cross religion in this classroom. This is not to be tolerated. It is beneath the dignity and respect and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. Is this understood? Welcome to seminary. Do you get what he hates? He doesn't hate the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't hate bad men becoming good. What he hates is this. Listen to the mockery. A God is beneath dignity to believe a God who had to kill in order to forgive. He hates the thought of a righteous, righteous, holy, just judge that's going to pour out wrath one day. And the only way sinners can be saved is if the Son of God takes that wrath for them. He despises that thought. He goes on to say some other things very similar. Like he quotes this theologian that says, false theologian. We must realize that Jesus did not die in order to change God's attitude towards us, but to change our attitude towards God. You get what he's saying? He didn't have a problem with conversion. Jesus died to change our attitude towards God. He had a problem with that. What he's got a problem with is... Jesus didn't die to change God's attitude towards us. You see what he's trying to twist? You see what he despises? The thought that our God has righteous wrath he's going to pour out one day. He hates that thought. And sinners are going to come underneath the wrath of God. But Jesus died to stand in our place so that enemies become friends, as it says in Romans 5.10. He despises that thought. He, he quotes another book that was endorsed by, it says here, N.T. Wright and Brian McLaren, that, that talks about substitutionary atonement as a, as a cosmic child abuse. That the father abused the son. They just malign it and call it cosmic child abuse. What they want, here's what they want. They want it to be like this, that God sent his son to die on the cross just to show you how much he loves you in compassion. Compassion to you. Now, it's true, Right? But they want to case close that and say, it's just an example. Your sin was not really laid upon him there. And God's wrath was not really poured out on him there. I'll give you just one more. <clears throat> what if somebody said this to you? The cross is a revelation of a compassionate God. Would you say amen? The cross is a revelation of a compassionate God. I hope you'd say Amen. But look at what he says two sentences before. Christ is not appeasing God's wrath. God is not sadistically crucifying his beloved son. The cross is a revelation of a compassionate God. Again, what does he hate? What does he hate? He hates the same thing that, you know the song, till on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know that song? 
They hate the same thing that the... There's a certain denomination that wanted to change it to this. They asked the Gettys if they could change it to this. They turned them down. Till on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. What do they hate? They hate the wrath of God was satisfied. So there's, here's what I'm trying to get across. There is an attempt to remove substitution. Oh, bad men become good? Great. Forgiveness of sins? Great. Rooted in a substitution? No way. Don't let them remove it from your gospel. The, you know, our enemies that want to do that, their biggest problem is the Bible. And so, let me just mention a few things about substitution from just the places where we're at in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They feel their own nakedness. They need covering. And God covers them in animal skin. So, they sin. Another is slaughtered so they can be covered in their nakedness. Interesting. Genesis 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Two offerings are offered to God. A bloody offering and another offering, which is a not bloody offering, grain offering. And, 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 and which one does God accept? He, he accepts the bloody offering. But the very beginning, we're getting this picture that one must bleed and die in your place. To take your punishment. We come to Genesis uh, chapter 22. And what do we see? That God tells Abraham. Abraham, take your son. Your only son. Do you hear it? Take your son. Your only son. And offer him up as a sacrifice. You see what's being taught in substitution? And the knife goes up. And it's about to come down in the sun. And God says, wait, stop. And he stops. The knife stops. and never goes through Isaac. And it takes a ram that's caught in a thicket and brings the ram. And the ram is slaughtered in the place of Isaac. Substitution. Substitution. Exodus chapter 12, we see the Passover. The Passover. Death is going to come to this house. Death is going to come to this house. Death is going to come to this house. How do you stop death from coming to your house? Go slaughter a lamb. Take the blood. Put it up on the doors. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be on you to destroy you. Substitution, a lamb that dies in the place of sinners. You get to the end of Exodus and you got that tabernacle. <coughs> All those details about that glorious tabernacle that would be built. And what's it for? A place where God can dwell with men. But then the tabernacle's built. And we're at the end of Exodus and the tabernacle's built. And guess what? Nobody can enter into that place. How could sinful man enter in to the presence of a holy God? Next book in the Bible, Leviticus, by the blood of another. How will he enter into the presence? How will he enter into the tabernacle? By the blood of another, by the blood of another, by the blood of another. We get to Leviticus 16, and you've got the Day of Atonement. Take your hands, priest, and put it on the head of that animal and confess all the sins of the people onto that animal and then slaughter it. And confess all your sins unto another and send it out into the wilderness. Substitution, substitution, substitution. And we're, we haven't even gotten past the first three books of the Bible. This is the reason when I read Judah. Who is he? 
He's, the part, he's part of that promised seed. Judah, the, the offspring of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And through Judah is going to come that Messiah. This is the reason when I read about the seed, Judah, offering himself up as a substitute in the place of Benjamin. It says, take me instead of Benjamin. Punish me for his crime. I believe it screams. Christ Jesus has died. Christ Jesus is our great substitute better than Judah. Now, how do you respond to this kind of stuff? Um, You mainly worship. It's mainly what you do is you worship, which is what I want us to do. Here's how I want us to respond to the beauty of Genesis 43 and 44, and specifically the beauty of conversion rooted in substitution. And I want to help us to do that by doing this, okay? There's a song called Hallelujah, All I Have is Christ. You know it? Hallelujah, All I Have is Christ. And I want you to see in these lyrics, before we sing it, I want you to see in these lyrics, conversion rooted in substitution. We see conversion in the first and third line. Listen to this. I once was lost. In darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Third line. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone. And live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Now, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Do you see conversion? Rooted in substitution. Listen to the second line. But as I ran my hell-bound race indifferent to the cost. Hell? Who cares? You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love display. What does it say? He suffered in my place. Substitution. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us to worship with all our hearts right now. Father, thank you so much for your word, your beautiful, glorious, authoritative word. We love it, Lord. And God, we praise you for Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have converted so many souls around this room, Lord. And uh, you've made us new creations. And God, you, you, you have done a mighty, mighty work that puts your miracle, your miracle working on display. And Lord, we praise you for the cross. And God, I pray that that you would help us even now to worship you for the conversion you've wrought in us and help us to worship you for the very basis of it. Lord Jesus, that you have died for sinners. Help us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.